and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associate tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Drs. Jennifer Bronson and Latoria Whitehead. Jennifer is a medical sociologist who conducts complex quantitative, qualitative, and evaluation studies designed to improve the health and safety of individuals and communities. She focuses on criminal justice and behavioral health research. Tori is an accomplished thought leader and political scientist, working at the intersection of public health, environmental justice, and environmental sustainability. She has nearly 20 years of experience working at the CDC. She recently served in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Environmental Justice, and when she isn't working on environmental justice here at APT, she's teaching at Spelman College. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. The gross overrepresentation of black men, women, and youth in our justice system is well documented, and it's mirrored by a similarly distorted incidence of environmental justice challenges for black families. The breadth of these challenges, which lead to additional inequities in health, employment, and more, can feel overwhelmingly diverse. But what if we start to address both of these seemingly disparate challenges through the lens of environmental justice? Let's connect the dots. Tori, what do we traditionally mean when we say environmental justice? Thank you, Eric. So environmental justice means that everyone, regardless of my race, my color, my national origin or income, has the right to live in a healthy environment, have the same environmental protections and benefits of the environment. But it also means that I have meaningful involvement in in shaping policies that impact my community. EJ is a manifestation of systemic racism. It's a layer of systemic racism where it manifests itself around social and economic issues. So historical racist policies and laws have really created and sustained these disparate environmental conditions for the Black African-American population. For example, redlining is a discriminatory practice that was created in the 1930s during the New Deal era, where maps were created and they were color-coded to indicate where it was safe to insure mortgages. So where your Black African-American population where they lived or lived nearby red lines were drawn to say these areas are too risky to insure these mortgages. Therefore, what happens here is that you have the Black population being housed in urban housing areas and very poor areas and polluted areas, and they are surrounded by the spirit condition. This has created racial residential segregation, which is a systemic condition blighting the lives for many people in the African-American population. Health disparities are a part of that. So when we live in dilapidated poor housing with mold, lead in the water, living near manufacturing facilities and power plants, living near toxic waste sites as well, we have health disparities that are born out of that, such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, air pollution. There's an association between air pollution and pesticides and birth defects and hospitalizations for heart attacks. Childhood lead poisoning is associated with learning disabilities, uh, the lower IQ of children, behavioral problems, and poor nutrition. Asthma is associated with poor air quality, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. These are all environmental injustices. And so the root causes of the majority of these environmental injustices are systemic racism, structural and systemic racism. Race, more so than class, is still today the number one indicator on where a toxic waste facility will be placed. 
environmental racism is a term that was coined by a civil rights leader, Dr. Benjamin Chavis, in the 1980s. And he defines environmental racism as racial discrimination in environmental policymaking and enforcement of regulation and laws where we target communities of color on where these hazards will be placed. And so environmental racism is a form of systemic racism. And many uh, poor communities of color are looked at as not having the political power to really fight these issues are really seen as ignorant and not caring about these issues. So the environmental justice movement was born out of communities of color really experiencing the disproportionate burden of environmental hazards. Because I am a person of color living in poverty or in in a low-income neighborhood, or I am a person of color, I am fighting to live in a healthy environment with healthy environmental amenities because I'm experiencing the disproportionate burden of these environmental hazards that I really should not be experiencing. And so these principles of environmental justice were organized in 1991 at the first People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit that took place in Washington, D.C. So this is the time now where we have gone beyond uh, air pollution and, and bad water. Now, We are looking at environmental justice as a safe and nurturing and productive environment where I can interact with with confidence without experiencing discrimination, without experiencing racism. So we've got a radical history of chronic overrepresentation in both uh, poor housing and poor health outcomes for black black families. Um, Jennifer, can you catch us up on what that overrepresentation looks like in the justice system? Yes. Hi. Um, So overrepresentation, we also see it in the criminal justice system. And what we mean here is that a group of people um, are disproportionately or overrepresented from what we would expect. So for example, men are roughly 50% of the people in the general population, but they're about 93% of the prison population. So for that reason, we say men are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Likewise, we see a similar pattern by race where black people are overrepresented. Um, If we look just at the prison system, so that's excluding arrests and jail data, we see that in 2022, uh, data show that about 32% of people in prison were black about 31% were white. But in the general population, only about 12% of the U.S. population is black and about 58% are white. So you would expect to see, if things were proportionate, you would expect to see similar percentages in the criminal justice system and in the general population. What's important to note, though, um, two things about overrepresentation, particularly by race, is that this pattern is present across the justice system. So we see black adults and black children overrepresented among people who are shot by police, for example, among those who are arrested to be held in jail, having a conviction or a sentence to have longer sentences. We see it along the cycle as a whole. But I think what is really critical to understand and what gets lost in these discussions about race and numbers and overrepresentation that the problem itself is not because of race or not because one group of people is inherently less criminal or more criminal than another, but the answer is racism. And that is a really critical difference to understand. 
Um, and it's racism that has shaped policies, procedures, systems, institutions for over 400 years. And at the front end of this, this is what we see spilling over. So, for example, neighborhoods that are disproportionately black and brown and or of lower income, they generally have more police surveillance, which is going to increase your chance of police contact. That's kind of how it starts. And then from there, you may or may not have the same resources to be able to challenge charges, get the right lawyer, be able to get bailed out. Um, so all that good stuff starts to come into play. Thank you. So these are all the outcomes of systemic racism. Uh, Tori, how are these braided uh, challenges rather than, say, parallel challenges? So when we think about the environment, people usually think about our natural environment, such as the birds, the trees, uh, the wildlife, greenery, and oceans. But the environment is where we, where we live, is where we work, where I play, where I go to school, where I worship. And of course, this is also my social and my built environment. When we come out the door every day, what is what are you surrounded by? Am I surrounded by uh, grocery stores where I can have fresh vegetables and fruits? Do I have open spaces? Do I have uh, parks? I should feel safe and be able to really act with confidence in my environment to be my best self without experiencing racism or any type of discrimination. So as Jennifer described the disproportionate police surveillance and the presence in predominantly black neighborhoods and stores and schools, these are racist acts, but it's also a disruption of my environment. So with the repeated, the stop and frisk, the racist treatment, the violence, the unjust killings, experienced by African-American communities who are heavily policed, it makes the place where I work, I live, and play, my environment, mentally stressful and very unsafe. And these acts are not equal throughout society, as Jennifer talked about earlier. So where I live at, where I get up every day, as I go to bed every night, day in and day out, if I'm experiencing these things, uh, of course, uh, this is mentally stressful and it's unsafe. So that means that these communities, specifically Black communities, have a greater difficulty safely participating in their community. Going outside parks, enjoying the parks, enjoying recreational activities, being able to exercise, all of this is a part of my environment. And so it is, it is environmental injustice, environmental racism, when I'm experiencing these really racist acts of the police. Childhood lead poisoning has been linked to criminal activity and criminal violence. Mm. The more mm. lead in the child system, the more likely they're to be arrested as a young adult, um, according to the National Institute of Health. And the majority of these young adults, as Jennifer pointed out earlier, are the African-American population. Who are disproportionately exposed to lead in their water, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Racism, you know, it's really paved the way for these disparate patterns of environmental justice and criminal justice to occur. But criminal justice is part of your built environment. Policing patterns are part of your built environment. And that isn't always connected or acknowledged in a way that can facilitate um, solutions and responses and interventions across the spectrum and really understanding 
the scope of these problems and the impacts of racism. You know, when we look at health disparities alone, that's really kind of the the intermediate variable or, um, you know, kind of between them where environmental justice um, or injustice can lead to health disparities and poor health increases your risk of justice involvement. Um, justice involvement is a risk for poor health. Environmental racism, exposure to environmental toxins, increases your risks for justice involvement and poor health. So you really get a circular mm -hmm. pattern and kind of a chicken and egg, but it's the point is that they're happening together and not necessarily what causes what. Gotcha. And, um, and so there's that circular pattern, right, of justice involvement and poor health, but there's also just the pure facts of the poor health when you're involved in the justice system. Um, you know, it's like, Tori, what are some of the um, justice challenges you're seeing once someone is incarcerated, right? Because your environment is, is even further degraded, presumably. Yes, yes. So um, to highlight a few cases, according to the Department of Justice, um, investigations that have been done specifically on these uh, prisons and state legislative audits. For example, you have the Mississippi State Penitentiary. The Mississippi State Penitentiary is known by its plantation name because it used to be a plantation for enslaved black, the black population for African-Americans. And so it's known by a slave name as Parchment Farm. It's 80% black right, right now, uh, the inmates that are there, whereas the uh, free population from Mississippi is only 37% black. And so some of the things, some of the challenges that the prison right now, the prisoners are experiencing is infrastructure is uh, extremely dilapidated. The inmates have gone days without running water. The toilets are overflowing with raw sewage. Uh, the drainage is not, the drainage, they don't function properly, causing flooding. There's a lack of electricity, black mold. All of these, of course, are environmental issues and really are just inhumane conditions. When we look at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, commonly referred to as Angola prison. Again, this prison was also a plantation for enslaved people as well. The prison is huge and the property covers about 18,000 acres of land. And in this prison currently, uh, the incarcerated, they are forced to perform some of the same labor as if they were on a plantation. These prisoners are picking cotton. They are being patrolled by guards on horses armed with guns. And of course, they are also experiencing extreme heat and inadequate medical care. Some of a lot of these prisons are built on uh, hazardous waste sites. They're surrounded by uh, coal ash dumps, raw sewage, mines, and landfills. Uh, we have Letcher County, Kentucky prison. It's a proposed prison, and the site that they're proposing to build the prison on is a coal mine site. And so if they build this prison on the coal mine site, it has been known to, of course, leach arsenic and radon, causing health risks to the incarcerated population and the staff that work inside the prison as well. And so you have these various issues of uh, experiencing in the prison environmental inequality. And you also have uh, some of these issues where you have prisoners uh, being treated as if they are on a on a plantation, as if slavery were still in existence today. 
those are great points. Um, and to expand or highlight a particular angle of what we're seeing within correctional facilities is the increase in temperatures. Um, so we've got a group of people who statistically we know are significantly sicker than people who are not incarcerated. So that includes your asthma, your cardiovascular, um, infectious diseases, mental health, behavioral health. So all of those we know are overrepresented. But what people don't necessarily realize is many prison and jail facilities are not air conditioned, particularly back where the residents sleep and spend the bulk of our time. So a factor in overcrowding, um, increasing temperatures from climate change and facilities that are inadequately cooled, they may only have AC in some parts of the facility or not at all. And so what's happening is you have people who are incarcerated for pretty benign things, unpaid parking tickets, drug possession charges. Not everyone who's incarcerated is there because they did something awful and scary. In fact, that's very rarely the case. And so from a human rights perspective, we have people in prison and jail who have been sentenced to serve time not experience extreme heat above and beyond what the human body can take and not to die from preventable heat stroke. We saw, you know, in some of these facilities, particularly those in the South, it reached 120 degrees. As a result, research is showing more essentially premature deaths and more preventable deaths among people in facilities due to heat. I think some of the recent data I've seen showed that about 635 people in prison, so that doesn't include jails, have died of heat-related causes in the last 20 years. And nine people in Texas died last summer alone. This is a concern. Um, this is a concern yeah. and something that facilities will need to think about and society will need to think about as well. We've just described what's happening when you're incarcerated. You come out, and, and what and what are your circumstances when you come out of you know you you return to your community, hopefully, right? And then where are you? As Jennifer described earlier, you have the black population where we are they are targeted by the criminal justice system from daily living to arrest. The some things happen in incarceration and really increasing the odds of experiencing environmental injustices. And African-Americans are more likely to experience, of course, aggressive policing, and therefore, if incarcerated, are subjected to, subjected to inhumane living conditions. And so, Eric, as um, your point, what happens when you come out of this, this system? Well, now you have many people that have come out this system and their families are often forced to live in highly segregated urban areas that really can impair a person's physical health, uh, making them less likely to engage in outdoor physical activity as well, and being surrounded really by what we call built environment disparities. Uh, with this disparate built environment comes a lack of quality education, what sociologists call the spatial mismatch. I live on the east side, Public transportation is on the west side, and all the jobs are also on the west side. There's urban sprawl with, that is linked to noise, over, overcrowding, indoor-outdoor air pollution, inaccessible resources, such, again, as jobs and transportation, fresh food, health care, 
the lack of parks, again, and open spaces, recreation, public spaces, and the effects of climate change, of course, such as heat waves and community displacement uh, for a lot of poor populations. So what we're describing here are social conditions that really impact your health, which we call social determinants of health in the public health arena. But all of these pieces and these components are around my built environment. So what you have here is, is a cycle happening that really has started from systemic racism. And it's happening before, it's happening uh, during, uh, when the incarcerated are in prison, and then it's happening after. We're, we're recreating this cycle of living in poverty and also living and experiencing environmental inequalities. Including that over-policing, because you're returning to that community. Okay, last question. What can we do to start breaking this cycle? And there's so many perspectives, right? We're talking about we're talking about housing, we're talking about employment, we're talking about health, you know, and they're all interrelated, obviously, um, as we're outlining here. But what, within this prism, the lens of environmental justice and criminal justice, what what can we maybe do to start turning the tide here? When I think about how we approach crime and crime prevention in the U.S., it's it's, it's very reactionary. Um, and in part, that's because of the way that the problem has been framed. And, you know, I've, I've since Tori and I have been having these conversations, you know, I've wondered, you know, if we frame, you know, criminal justice, the overrepresentation of of Black people in the criminal justice system, if we frame that as an environmental justice issue, which it is, because it is our built environment, does that then change how we start to look at solutions, how we start to look at um, interventions? You know, ultimately, healthy communities grow healthy people and families, and healthy people and families grow healthy communities. And the criminal justice system is part of that how people become involved with it, what happens to them while they're there, and what happens when they return and where they return to. So I think breaking down the silos a little bit more, having these connections and looking at how we define problems so that we can um, find better solutions. I definitely agree with Jennifer on that point. Policing should be analyzed as an environmental racism issue. It is a part of environmental racism, and it is also a part of trying to accomplish what we call environmental justice. This is built on systemic racism. This is built on structural racism. It's another form of racism. It's environmental racism. And so, you know, breaking down these pieces with more investigations done by the Department of Justice, uh, with more investigations done around uh, policing in uh, Black communities, in African-American communities, it should be done as well. But environmental racism has to be a part of these bigger conversations that we are having around structural racism. As we talked about earlier, many people, when they think about the environment, you're not thinking about it, the humanity and human health that is connected to the environment. You are thinking the natural environment. You are thinking wilderness and, and preservation. But this is human rights. It's a part of our human rights. And policing should be analyzed as over-policing as those the, uh, the lack of human rights in connection to 
environmental racism as well. So it has to be uh, talked about a lot more, and it has to be in that same dynamic of structural and systemic racism, because that is what uh, this is built on. Thank you. Well, you know, obviously at APT, we, we look at these holistically. We talk about the social determinants of health. Um, but it's great that the two of you are, are making this connection to help help us see that bigger picture. Uh, so thank you both for sharing that today. Thank you for having us, Eric. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Jennifer, as well. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect. Mm-hmm.